When I, when I was a kid, uh, the preacher used to get up on Easter and say a phrase and then we would repeat it back to him. We would add the word indeed on the back. So I thought we could do that this morning. He is risen. Indeed. indeed. Amen. What a joy uh, to be here with you on this great resurrection Sunday. I'm here to tell you this morning, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. <laughs> the tomb is empty today. And Jesus is alive. Amen. I invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 tells the story of what happened on that first day of the week after Jesus had been crucified. I'm going to read this account for you this morning. What you may not know if, if you're new to the faith or new to church, new to Jesus, you may not know that Luke is a historian. And he writes two books of the Bible, the book of Luke, which tells the life and the story of Jesus. And then he writes the book of Acts, which tells the story of, of what happened after the life of Jesus, how the church began and, and how the, the, those who followed Jesus, what they did after his life. And Luke has garnered for himself the reputation of being, hear me in this, the most accurate historian in all of antiquity. Time and time again, Luke lists certain details about who was in power, in what place, in what region, at what time, historical details that time and time and time again have been proven to be true, to be reliable, to be factual by archaeologists, by historians, by librarians, by, by people who have researched Luke. He is the most accurate historian of all of antiquity. In fact... Not a single one of his historical claims have been proven to be false. In both the book of Luke and the book of Acts, on every point that he can be checked, he has proven to be telling the truth, proven to be reliable and accurate. And so as we, we turn to Luke chapter 24, of course Luke chapter 23 ends with Jesus being buried, him, him being crucified on the cross, him being killed and, and murdered by both the, the Roman government and the Jewish leadership. He's taken down off of the cross by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He's placed in a borrowed tomb that Joseph loaned to him, not knowing that it would only be borrowed for just a few days the, the Romans put guards there. They sealed the tomb. They put a re regiment of uh, guards there to guard the tomb to make sure nobody would disturb it. And then we read about what happens here after that in Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to skip down to verse 36 through the end of the chapter. It says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And and returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven, that's Jesus' disciples, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. And then verses 13 through 35 tell the story of Jesus appearing to two of his disciples as they walked on the road uh, leaving Jerusalem and how he spoke with them and how he broke bread with them and how he explained to them everything that had happened and why it had happened. And then we're going to pick up the story here in verse 36. It says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy... And were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the Old Testament scriptures, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but you must stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And returning to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, uh, Lord, as we meditate on these things this morning, Lord, these great truths, Lord, this, the, the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. 
Lord, that just as Jesus lives today, Lord, that the truth of his resurrection would be made manifest to us. Lord, that it would be revealed to us by your spirit. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are open to the truth of your gospel today, which is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, we thank you that you did die for our sins, but you were raised to give us new life and forgiveness and justification, and that because you live, we too can be made alive, born again by your spirit today. We thank you for the great hope that we have because of your resurrection today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I know that among us this morning, there will be several different groups of people. There will be people who, maybe like me, you grew up in church and you believed upon Jesus and his resurrection your whole life. And so today is just another reminder, another day to gather with God's people to celebrate what he has done, to sing songs, to remember the life, the death, and the resurrection the ascension and the return of Christ. Maybe you grew up in church, but then you went to college and your college professors filled you with all kinds of ideas about the, the, calling into question the, the, the truths of the word of God and the veracity of God's word and, and turned you from a believer into a skeptic. And maybe you are here this morning and, and that would describe you that you're not against Christ, you're not anti-Christ, but you, you just have some doubts on, on whether or not he truly did rise. Maybe there are some of you here today that you were drugged here by your family who promised you that after church they'd take you out to eat, and so, but you're really upset about it and you're despising me right now because you have to sit here and listen to the preacher preach. I want to share with all of us this morning, whatever camp that we are in, I want, to, I want to talk to us about the historical evidence for the empty tomb, the facts about Jesus. And I want to give you this morning seven facts about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, seven historical facts Actually, I'm looking at my notes here. I only have six. Hey, you're off the hook. You, you, you're missing an extra point. Six. My holiday gift to you, a shorter sermon today. Six historical facts on the resurrection, on the empty tomb, the empty tomb. These are historical facts about Jesus. These are facts gained from, from history, not just from the Bible, but from history itself. The first is that there was a Jew named Jesus. Jesus who came from Nazareth, that he lived a life in the first century. This is a historical fact. Second is that he grew up to be a preacher and a teacher of the Torah, which is God's law. A Jew named Jesus in the first century grew up in Nazareth, grew up to be a preacher and a teacher of God's law, the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. That as he did this, he, he had a period of, of ministry, public ministry, and during that time he gathered a group of disciples 
who followed his teaching, who believed that that he would be a a great deliverer, a Messiah, and they, they believed what he taught and they began to practice what he preached. Through his life, he he came into conflict with the Jewish leadership of his day as as what he taught was was, uh, very much opposed to what the Jewish leadership at the time taught. And so the Jewish leadership had him crucified in Jerusalem under the Roman governor of Pontius Pilate. Next is that on the third day after his crucifixion, on the first day of the week, on a Sunday morning... His tomb was discovered to be empty, first by women and then later by his own disciples. And number six, that his disciples began preaching that the reason why Jesus' tomb was empty was because Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, everything I've just told you is not taken from the Bible What I've just told you is taken from the pages of history. These historical facts are not only found in the the, the four Gospels, in the New Testament. Though they are found there, they're also attested to us by historians that lived in the first and second century. And so we can know these historical facts about Jesus, not from sacred scripture which we as Christians believe is the word of God, but looking at other historians from Jesus' day. Let me give you just a few. Josephus. And you can go and research this yourself. If you doubt me, go and research this. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He was not a believer in Christ. He writes in the late first century. And he mentions Jesus. He he talks about Jesus And he talks about his life and his death, his ministry, his death on the cross. And he mentions that his tomb was found empty. This is an early historian writing in the first century about a man named Jesus, his life, his death, and his empty tomb. Tacitus was a Roman historian. And all of these historians I'm naming for you, none of them were Christian. None of them were believers in Jesus. Tacitus was a Roman historian. He wrote early in the second century. He also mentions Jesus. And he reports that Emperor Nero, who was an emperor of Rome in the 60s, 60s AD, that Emperor Nero blamed the Christians, those who followed Christ, for the fire of Rome in AD 64. And Tacitus claims that Christians took their name from Christ. They followed Christ, and that's where their name came from. The word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Savior. That they take their name from Christ, and that Christ was executed by Pontius Pilate under the emperor Tiberius. And that Christians believed that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the witness, the historical witness from the early 2nd century of the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a Roman governor named Pliny the Younger, and he also wrote in the early 2nd century, and he mentions that Jesus, he mentions Jesus while, while inquiring 
from uh, the, emperor, the, emperor, the emperor Trajan, he inquires of him for evidence and advice on how to deal with the Christians in his province. Pliny the Younger, a Roman governor, was having issues with the Christians because they had turned so many away from idols that the, uh, the temples to these false gods were falling into disrepair. And so he reaches out to the emperor to say, what should I do about them? They gather for worship on the first day of the week. They worship Christ as God. They sing hymns to him. And they take an oath every time they gather together. Mentioning, of course, the Lord's Supper. This is from the early second century. Suetonius is another Roman historian, a Roman biographer, again writing early in the second century. He also mentions Jesus briefly in his work uh, on the life of 12 Caesars. That's the name of his work. And he mentions that Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome in the first century because of disturbances caused between the followers of Christ and the, uh, the Jews of his day and that they were, they were constantly causing riots. And so he has all of the followers of Christ and all of the Jews expelled from Rome. And so Suetonius also mentions, again, that Christians were persecuted, the followers of Christ persecuted under Emperor Nero. And finally, uh, an early historical evidence for the life of Christ is the Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of teachings of Jewish rabbis that developed over centuries but early on, it mentions Jesus several times. And of course, the Jewish rabbis reject Christ. And so their, their talk of Jesus in the Talmud is extremely negative. It accuses Jesus of being a sorcerer, a heretic, a bastard, and a blasphemer. It also reports that he was executed on the eve of the Passover. And while it is negative in its portrayal of Jesus... What it confirms for us is the historicity of the life and death of Jesus. And so all of these provide external evidence away from the Bible for the historicity of the life and the death and the empty tomb of Jesus. And so we as Christians, we believe the Bible, we believe the Word of God. We as Christians have faith in Christ and in his resurrection. We, we don't need external evidence for us to confirm that the Bible is true and that the Bible is the word of God. I lay that evidence for the skeptic here this morning who would come in here today and think that Jesus is just like the Easter bunny. That, that Jesus is just a figment of someone's imagination. That Jesus is just a made-up story. That the life and the death and the resurrection and the empty tomb of Jesus are, are just simply nice things that adults tell themselves about God to make themselves feel better about death. The truth is, from history, that Jesus really did live, that he really did die under Pontius Pilate, crucified by Rome, and that on the third day his tomb was empty. That is settled 
history. And because of this mountain of evidence, today there is not a credible historian alive, whether he be Christian, atheist, agnostic, or whatever, who would deny the historic reality of Jesus' life and death, and yes, the empty tomb. You would have an easier time dismissing from history, dismissing from history figures like Alexander the Great, figures like Julius Caesar, figures like Attila the Hun. It would be much easier to dismiss them than Christ because of the historic evidence that we find. So, the life and the death of Jesus and the empty tomb are a historic reality. And they cannot be denied by rational, logical, or historical means. If you want to deny the life, death, and empty tomb of Christ, you have to do so on illogical, irrational, and anti-historic means. These things are settled historic facts, just like every other fact of history settled by evidence and eyewitness accounts. The question is, what are you going to do with the empty tomb? The life, death, and empty tomb of Christ are settled. What will you do with that? What are you going to do about the empty tomb? And I'm going to press you on this point. How are you going to account for the fact that the tomb of Jesus was empty on that third day. Now his disciples claimed that he rose from the dead. That's the claim of scripture. That's the claim of the disciples. That's the claim of the church. They claimed to have seen him and spoken to him after his resurrection. Here we read about him appearing to his disciples and asking for a bite to eat because he was hungry it says that they thought when they saw him, maybe they were seeing a spirit, maybe they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus pressed upon them that he was not a ghost, that he had risen physically from the dead. He said, look, I have a body, I have skin and bones. Look at my scars, look at my hands, look at my feet. Give me something to eat. And so the disciples go out preaching and, and proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. That he rose defeating death itself. And the Apostle Paul rightly concludes in the book of 1 Corinthians that the whole of the Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul rightly says that if Christ did not rise, there is nothing here to see. There is no value here. If Christ did not rise, Christianity is a lie. There is nothing here if Christ did not rise. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins. But, he says, Christ is has been risen. So what are, the, what are the main objections to Jesus' resurrection? 
What are the, the best ideas? You know, people have been wrestling with this for 2,000 years. The, the historic reality of the empty tomb, the, the church that advances and that goes forward preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Well, what, what are the ideas? What are the, the thoughts that have been given? What, what have the best thinkers that deny the resurrection, what have they come up with? I'm going to give them to you this morning. I have no problem giving you these this morning because I believe that the truth of the resurrection triumphs over these falsehoods. The first is that Jesus did not die on the cross, but that he simply swooned. This is called the swoon theory. We don't use the word swooned a whole lot uh, anymore. That he passed out, that, that he became unconscious. That as Jesus hung there, having been scourged, that's whipped 39 times by the cat of nine tails by a, a Roman executioner, beaten beyond all recognition, nailed to a cross, a spear thrust into his side, puncturing not only his heart, but his ribcage, and, and blood and water flowing out, that after all of that, the horrors of execution, the horrors of the cross, that somehow these trained Roman executioners didn't realize that Jesus was still alive, that they put an alive Jesus in the tomb. And that somehow, after laying in the tomb with no medical assistance, behind a Roman guard, behind a Roman seal, bleeding for two nights, Friday night, Saturday night, that somehow he mustered enough energy, mustered enough strength to roll the stone away and overcome the Roman guards and then present himself to his disciples who mistook this literally walking, limping emergency room scene that he had vanquished death. If this had happened, the disciples would not have thought, Jesus rose and defeated death. We must go and proclaim his resurrection to all nations. They would have said, Get this guy an ambulance. Get, get this guy to the hospital. We, we gotta, he needs emergency attention. Somebody call 911. The idea that Jesus didn't die but swooned, that he rolled the stone away with no help, with no medical attention, that he overcame the Roman guard, that he presented himself to his disciples in that state, and that they thought and mistook him for being risen. Is, is unbelievable to me. It's illogical to me. It's irrational to me. The only way that Jesus could have deceived the executioners on the cross would have been for him to stop breathing. I don't know if you know a lot about biology. I know it's a famous saying today. I'm not a biologist. But if you stop breathing, you die. There is no way for him to be laid in that tomb alive. Jesus did not swoon. Jesus died. So the next argument goes that Jesus did not rise, but that his body was stolen. 
that his disciples decided to steal his body, sneak off with it, and then go and start preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now for this to have happened, all of the Roman guards would have had to have fallen asleep at the same time because the disciples did not overcome the Roman guard. That's not the account we have from history. They could not have done that in and of themselves. They did not have the, the strength, the training, the weaponry, the desire, the motivation. So all of the guards would have had to have fallen asleep at the same time, even though to be found asleep as a Roman guard would have, been, would have meant certain death for you. Highly improbable, highly unlikely that they would have all fallen asleep, but that's what would have had to have happened. And then they would have had to have stayed asleep and not be awakened by the breaking of the Roman seal that was on the tomb, by the rolling away of the enormous stone, or the carrying off of the dead body of Jesus. The idea that the, the, the Roman guard, the Roman regimen, all slept through the disciples breaking into the tomb and stealing it is illogical and irrational and absolutely laughable. Additionally, you have to deal with the motive. What would have been the motive for Jesus' disciples to do such a thing? In their mind, they had no vision for a Messiah that would be crucified. Their vision of the Messiah was one who was going to go and to overthrow Rome. Well, Rome had just crushed him. Rome had just killed him. Rome had just murdered him, executed him, crucified him. And all of the disciples were a bunch of scared little boys hiding, worried that that was going to happen to them too. They were in no position and they had no motivation to go and to capture the body of Jesus. And remember, there was no such thing as Christianity. Jesus was not leading some sort of war, worldwide global movement. Jesus was a poor carpenter from Nazareth. Nazareth is like the most podunk little town you never heard of. In fact, when people hear that Jesus was from Nazareth, some of his early disciples said this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The idea that, that, that he, the disciples would, would take the body to go and preach the resurrection for someone who had been killed, there, there is no motivation for them to do that. It doesn't make sense, it's absolutely illogical. When Jesus died, all of their hopes in Christ died as well. That was it. They were done. Another one that is often given, I heard this one given this week, was that Jesus did not rise, but that his body was moved. That his body was moved. That Joseph of Arimathea, the one who took Jesus down and laid him in his own tomb, the tomb that the Roman guards came and guarded, that he wanted his tomb back. <laughs> I'm not joking. He wanted his tomb back. 
And so he had Jesus moved to another place. However, the preaching of the disciples is based on the empty tomb. The disciples begin preaching in the same city Jesus was crucified in. They don't go off to China to preach this. They preach in Jerusalem. By the time they begin preaching, the empty tomb and the mystery surrounding it is a well-known fact in the city. All that would have had to have been done is for Joseph to say, Oh, guys, hey, uh, <coughs> I moved the body. It's, it's right here. It's right next door. I, I just wanted my tomb back. And all of this stops. All of it goes away. It goes no further. The idea that Joseph moved the body and didn't tell anybody, was too embarrassed to tell Peter... All the authorities would have had to do to squash Christianity in one second is to produce the body of Jesus. But the tomb was empty. The body wasn't moved. Otherwise, his body would have been produced immediately when the disciples began to preach the resurrection. Another one that's given, and, and this is what the religion Islam teaches is that Jesus had a twin brother or a look-alike who was crucified instead of him. This is also, you know, played out in, in movies today, you know. Magicians who have a, a twin double. I'm not going to spoil any movies for you today, but, but j just so you know, like, like the, the Jesus right at the end, you know, his, his twin brother went and got on the cross and his twin brother that nobody knew of and nobody had ever seen and nobody ever heard of, but for some reason he gets on the cross and then Jesus hides out for a little bit and shows up and says, hey, guess what? I've risen. The problem with this is many, one, there's no evidence given anywhere that Jesus had a twin brother. And in fact, Jesus' own mother is at the foot of the cross. Muslims believe and teach that Judas was the one who was crucified. At the last minute, Judas was put on the cross instead of Jesus. Jesus' own mother, don't you think she would recognize? Hey, that's not my son. That's Judas. No, Mary, the mother of Christ, watches her son die. It was Jesus that was on that cross the, the final uh, argument against the resurrection of Jesus is that his followers hallucinated the resurrection. It was a hallucination. It was wishful thinking. The problem with that is hallucinations are not public events. You, you don't have a group hallucination. You don't all get together and and have a, a hallucination together. Hallucinations are private. You can't share them with somebody else. You can't say, wow, I'm having this amazing trip. Here, have, have some of my trip with me. That's not how it works. So I've been told that that's <laughs> not the way it goes. There are private events. They are not public. They are not 
shared. But what we see is that Jesus didn't just appear to individuals, that he appeared to groups of people. Groups of people at the same time. One group he appears to upwards of 500 at the same time. Jesus' appearances after the resurrection are varied. He doesn't only appear once. Hallucinations are not repeat events. Jesus kept appearing. And then after 40 days, all of these supposed hallucinations, they all stopped all at the same time for everybody at once. This is not how hallucinations work. This was not just wishful thinking on the account of the disciples as we read from the Gospels. This was not even in their mind to begin with. With When the women come and tell the disciples, Jesus is risen from the dead, they don't say, I knew it. It says they think that, you know, our women have gotten a little hysterical, you know, they've they kind of gone crazy. It, it seems to them, they say, to be an idle tale. There is no other logical, rational explanation for the empty tomb other than the fact that on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Amen. If you want to try to believe one of these things, it takes more faith to believe this than to simply believe that God the Father, the creator of all things, the, the sustainer of all life, the, the, the originator of the universe, rose his son from the dead. Amen. That he approved of the work that Christ had done on the cross and that he put his stamp of approval on the work of his son Jesus by raising him from the dead. And so the empty tomb, I want to close with this today. The empty tomb, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does the resurrection mean? If Jesus really did die for sin, rise again on the third day, what does it mean? Christians have been thinking on this and meditating on this for the past 2,000 years. And this empty tomb, hear me in this, the resurrection of Jesus is the one thing that changes everything. This changes everything. Because Jesus died and rose again, the natural order of things has been interrupted. The, the natural order of, of death and stay dead has been interrupted. There's been an anomaly inserted into human history. And this anomaly of the resurrection of Christ changes everything and changes history itself. Number one, it means that the claims of Christ are true. That Jesus was not a liar, that he was not a charlatan, that, that what he said about himself and the work that he came to do was true. The resurrection is the stamp of approval on the ministry and the works and the words of Christ. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. Jesus claimed to be the creator God who entered into the universe, the son of God. He claimed to be the one who is the author and the giver of life. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He, he demonstrated his power over nature by opening the eyes of the blind, 
by opening the ears of the deaf, by raising the lame, by multiplying food, by walking on water, and by even raising the dead. Jesus proved that he was who he said he was. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. That the reason why he came was because sin had separated humanity from God. That because of sin and, and breaking of God's law, all of humanity is lost. And that he came as the one mediator, the one who could reconcile humanity back to God. He came as the, the one who John the Baptist said was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to lay down his life as a sacrifice, as an atonement, to pay the price for the sins of mankind, to pay the price for those who would believe upon him. That's what he said. And he said that he was the only way to the Father, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him, that faith in Christ is necessary to be reconciled to God that there are not many ways to God, that there are not many paths to God, but that there is one way, and that is Jesus Christ. That is his own words. And the empty tomb means that what Jesus said was the truth. That he died for sin. He rose to give us new life, and that all who would believe upon him would have their sins forgiven would receive the eternal life that only he can give and that he is the one who reconciles us back to the Father. The second thing that this tells us is that sin has been defeated. We read about this in Romans chapter 6. I could read the whole chapter for you this morning, but I'm not going to do that today. Go home and read Romans 6. But because Jesus died defeating sin and rose in victory over sin, it means that sin has been defeated and that for the believer, we can walk in freedom from sin. Amen. Romans 6.14 says that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Sin has been defeated. Number three... Satan has been defeated. Amen. The enemy of God, the enemy of your soul. And, and the prophets had prophesied and God himself had told that the Messiah would suffer, that he would, would die, but that through his death, Satan would be defeated, that the, the head of the serpent would be crushed. And so the apostle Paul says that Jesus disarmed the spiritual forces and principalities, evil and dark spirits. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Christ defeated Satan. Satan is a defeated foe today. Number four, that death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. That for the believer, our faith in Christ promises us that just as he died and rose again, so we too who die in faith in Christ will likewise be raised to new life the same way he was as he rose from the dead. That when Christ returns, 
we will be given a new body, a glorified body, and that death itself has been defeated. The Apostle Paul writes, he says that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death has been defeated for the believer in Jesus Christ. Number five, it means that there is hope for the future. There is hope for the future because Jesus is alive, because he is seated at the right hand of God, because he ascended into heaven, and he rules as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's returning one day to establish his kingdom world without end, that there is hope for the future. There's a whole lot of uncertainty today about the future. What does the future hold? There's a whole lot of hand-wringing about this and that and, and all of the news and, and the dollar and, and the war and, and Putin and, and climate change and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Listen, because Jesus is alive and he is returning one day, there is hope for the future. There is hope for the future. Paul says that this light and momentary affliction, talking about what we suffer in this life, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The resurrection of the dead, the eternal life that we have with Christ forever and ever, there is hope for the future. But not only is there hope for the future, number six, there is hope for the present. There is hope for right now. Jesus said this, come to me, all of you who, are la who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, those who are weary. Come to me, those who, who are tired. Come to me, those who are, are worried and concerned and, and beaten down with the cares of this life. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And hear me in this, you will find rest for your souls. There is only one way to have peace for your soul, and that is with Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. You will not find peace for your soul in the world. You will not find it in entertainment. You will not find it in the distractions of life. You will not find it in some sort of trip or at the bottom of a bottle. You will not even find it at the end of a relationship with somebody else. You will only find hope and peace and rest for your soul in fellowship with Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. He gives healing to our souls. He gives our lives meaning and he gives our lives purpose. Number seven, finally today, Christ, because of the resurrection, Christ is worthy of worship. He is worthy to be worshipped as God. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is worthy of worship. He is worthy for us to bow the knee to. 
He is the one who, who lived the perfect life, a life without sin, never once breaking God's law, never once violating one of the commandments. He never lied. He never stole. He never looked with lustful intent on anybody else. He kept God's law perfectly. He was tempted, the Bible says, in every point, just as we are, yet without sin. All of us have been tempted and all of us have given in to temptation. All of us, the Bible says, have sinned, but Jesus never sinned. And Jesus went to the cross and on the cross, he laid down his life, his perfect life, as an offering for sin, to pay the price for sin, that the penalty for sin, the wages for sin, is death, the Bible says. Death that separates us from God, the author and the giver of life. And Jesus on the cross suffered the eternal shame, the eternal torment, the eternal death of God's wrath and justice against sin. God who is just and God who is holy demands that there be a price paid for sin. To not do so would make God unjust. And so God accepted the offering of Christ for sin. The empty tomb tells us that God received the offering, that the, the price has been paid. Jesus on the cross declared it is finished. What this means is that our own good works, our own good efforts, which in God's eyes are as filthy rags, if you think you're going to be made right before God because of your own goodness, you, I've got something else coming to you. We are all sinners. But Christ declared it is finished. There's not another work to be done. We receive his work on the cross. We receive it by faith, by trusting in him, by leaning upon him, by embracing him, by believing that he rose on the third day, by saying, Jesus, I know that you are my creator. I know that you love me. I know that that's why you died for me. I know that you shed your blood for me. And I receive what you did for me by faith. And when we do that, the Bible declares, our sins are forgiven. Our life of sin, our life of shame is passed away. That the righteousness of Christ is laid upon us. And our sin and shame was laid upon him at the cross. It's what the, the preachers have called the great exchange. That we give him our sin and shame and he clothes us in his righteousness. So that when God sees us today who are in Christ, he doesn't see a wretch. He doesn't see a stinking sinner. He sees the blood of his son applied to our account. Amen. And so God welcomes us. He beckons us to come to Christ. To, the, the way of salvation has been accomplished. That, that we need nothing less to be made right with God than what has already been done for us. Religion says you must do this, you must do that, you, you have to follow this, you have to follow that. If you don't keep all of these rules, you can never be right with God. The gospel says that we could not keep those rules, we have not kept those rules. And so instead of working for them, Christ came and did the work for us. Religion says we must do, but Jesus says it has been done. Amen. And the empty tomb declares to us that the cross was effectual, that the cross accomplished something. 
that Jesus really did pay the price for sin and that we really can be forgiven and that we really can have a relationship with God, our creator, that we really can be a new creation, that we really can be set free from the power of sin, the power of the devil, and even death itself. That's what the empty tomb declares to us. And so the claims of the empty tomb are too staggering to ignore. The empty tomb demands a response. The implications of what it means for you and for your life are too serious to ignore. Too serious to, to just brush under the rug with some glib little idea of, well, maybe his body was stolen, or maybe they misplaced it, or maybe blah, blah, maybe it was his twin, blah, blah, blah. No, listen, dear friends, the Bible says that in sin, we suppress the truth. That is your sin nature at war and rebellion against God. It is so blindingly obvious that Jesus is who he said he was, and you are in rebellion against God. And God calls you today to repent of your sin, to repent of your rebellion, to repent of your unbelief, and to turn to Christ in faith as the Son of God. That is the command that goes forward with the gospel. The gospel is not just a nice message. The gospel is a command from God himself. Repent and believe upon my Son. That is the message of the gospel. And all of us are being called today to repent of sin and to trust upon Christ. To walk away from sin and a life of shame and to trust in Christ. There is no hope for us outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, all we can expect to receive from God is the just judgment and penalty for our sin. And it makes no sense to continue to live in sin when the price has been paid for our sin. God in Christ today demonstrates his love for you. He loved you so much, he sent his son to die for you. Do not reject his love. Do not reject his free offer of grace. Do not reject the price that he paid. Repent of your sin. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of your hard heart. Repent of your rebellion against him and embrace his son, Jesus. The empty tomb demands a response. And so we are going to respond today. I invite you to stand with me this morning. I must confess that I said one thing this morning that was not true. One thing. That was that this was going to be a shorter sermon. <laughs> but every other word that I said this morning is the absolute God's honest truth. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the empty tomb? That's the issue. The Bible says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That, that to receive the work that Christ did, the forgiveness of sins, is simply to trust in him.
to, to come to Christ, repent of our sin, and to look to him to say, God, I believe in your son, Jesus. I don't know how it all works. I don't know how it all fits together, but I believe upon Christ. And when you do that, the Bible declares that you are saved, that you are a new creation. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to help you. I want to lead us all in a prayer of repentance. Lead us all in a prayer of faith. If you're here this morning, don't let this just be idle words in your mouth, but let them be a truth expressed from the depths of your soul and your heart. Would you bow with me in prayer? And I ask everyone here to repeat after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross in my place for my sins. I repent of my sins. I ask you to cleanse me. Thank you for saving me. I am now your child. Help me to follow Jesus all the days of my life and fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.